Welcome to the teaching ministry of pastors Carl and Cheryl Thomas. Our favorite verse is Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Consumed by that revelation, we are committed to recognizing, resourcing, and releasing high-impact ministries resulting in global glory, transforming lives to impact their world. We have a teaching that will impact you today. Now, let's get right into that word. Okay, so this isn't going to be like incredibly inspiring right now because it's going to be more of a teaching moment than it is a preaching moment. But we are beginning um, a study this summer on the book of Colossians. And so there are a lot of new converts to Impact Church, a lot of people who are very new in their Christian walk. And one of the number one questions I'm always asked by people when I begin a mentoring process or discipleship, or even one of the questions that Cheryl's asked when she's discipling people is, how should I read the Bible? So before we even get started on the book of Colossus, let's just go back and just do a little bit of review on how we should read the Bible. Or how do I even approach a book of the Bible? I don't know about you, but when I began to read the Bible, it seemed like a random collection of odd stories. However, after years and further investigation, I could discover, you and I can discover, that there's actually a unity to be found in the random stories. God is trying to say something in all of the individual stories, and he's trying to bring it all together as one story. And so they define it as a meta-narrative. So it's a big story, a big picture story with lots of little parts that make the big story work. N.T. Wright says this. It says the Bible story is important because it is divine drama told in Scripture, and it offers a story which is the story of the whole world. And so I love that. And I love that we can approach the Bible uh, as a narrative, but also as something that we can learn from as well. And so when you're reading your Bible, you should approach it as a narrative. You should be always asking How does this random little story or this random book fit into the big picture of what God is trying to say? And when we speak of the Bible stories and narrative, it allows us to make connections to concepts and ideas that are happening in the big story. And so in, you know, in school, I learned this big word called ontological. And so being, and so the whole idea of the narrative and the big meta-narrative of the story is that it helps us to make connections with what God is wanting to say. And the narrative and the meta-narrative of the Bible is really about how God revealed himself in Christ Jesus and how he reconciled himself to us or how he reconciled us to himself. So how should we interpret the Bible? And so there are rules of interpretation that are really, really important to know and to understand. And so you need to know definition, usage, logic, genre, uh, reliance in the Holy Spirit, all of these kind of things. One of the main things or one of the rules of interpretation, oh my gosh, we got it. Praise be to Jesus. <laughs> so if this gets really boring, you can let's look at the screen over there. I know Carl says I put too much, but I don't want you to miss anything. Because I, I mumble sometimes and, you know, being over 55 or around 55, sometimes I forget what I'm trying to say. So then it's up in the screen and you'll never miss it. Oh, good job, team. Okay, so one of the first rules, is, well, actually the first thing is just realizing that the Bible is a meta narrative and their stories aren't random. They actually come together to make a cohesive whole. And one of the other things is a rule of definition. What does the word actually mean? And sometimes this is hard for us to understand, but the uh, whole Bible, the Old Testament was written in Hebraic, Arabic, Aramaic, 
and Greek. And the New Testament was written in Greek. And so there were different meanings to the words that the authors of the scripture were trying to convey. So a study of scripture means we actually got to look at what the word means. And so if you're new to studying the Bible and you don't know where you can find these kinds of things, there are so many resources online called blueletterbible.com, biblegateway.com. And you can go into those sites and you can actually click on words and discover the meaning and the whole, the thing that the Roth authors and writers were trying to convey. The next rule is a rule of usage. And we have to remember that the Bible was written uh, in Hebrew and written in Greek. And so different words had different meanings and different usages for both the Hebrews and for the Greeks. And this one is really important, the rule of context. Context is everything. The meaning gathered from context. Every word you read must be understood in light of the words before it and the words after it. You have to read something in the context of the whole. No verse of scripture can be divorced from the verses around it. You can't do that. You'll just have a really warped view of what the Bible is actually saying. And the Bible wasn't written in a vacuum. So imagine what would happen if we read verses like this out of the context of what was said before and part of the whole. Hosea 1 verse 2, go marry a prostitute and have children with her. Context is everything. Go to Bethel and sin. (laughs) Context is everything. There is no God. It says that in Psalm 14 verse 1. Well, if I read that and, and just did not take that in context, I would be like, God, what are you saying about yourself? There's no God. It just seems to kind of contradict. Everything has to be in context. I want to show you a picture. Now, what is that? But whose nose? Is it my nose? Is it Julie's nose? I don't see freckles, so it can't be Julie's nose. Okay, go to... Ah! It's his nose! interpreting scripture apart from the context is like trying to analyze a picture only looking at a square inch context is everything when you approach the bible you have to make sure that you are viewing the bible and making an effort to to read the bible through context next one we have to go back to the other side historical background when we approach the Bible, we kind of got to try and figure out what is the historical background? What are the life and the times of the society that the author is writing the book in? There are spiritual principles that are timeless and universal for all of us, but sometimes they can be improperly applied if we don't understand the historical context in which the written word is formed. Next one, rule of logic. You can actually be logical when you approach the word. Interpretation is merely, merely logical reasoning. So a man was looking at a Bible, trying to find some guidance, and he thought, well, you know what? I'm just going to open up the Bible. I'm going to put my finger on on a page, and I'm going to do what God tells me to do from that. So when he opens his Bible and puts his finger on a page, he finds this. Judas went out and hanged himself. Not knowing what he should do with that, he tried again. This time his finger landed on, go and do likewise. Completely baffled now, he tries one more time. Whatever you do, do it quickly. So you can't have a random approach to the Bible, and you can't have an illogical approach to the Bible. Those kind of things would be illogical and would not be very applicable to your life. And then the next rule is the rule of genre. And that's, you know, determining what what is the genre of liter- literature that the Bible's being written in. Because you have historical books, you have poetic books, you have prophetic books, you have epistles, you have gospels, you have revelation. There are uh, There is a, a lot of 
different genres of writing that are represented in the Bible. And you know, I shouldn't make doctrine out of poetry, but Christians do that quite often. I shouldn't base my life just on the prophetic text. I have to view the book as a whole and not random pieces, okay? And then the last rule is the rule of depending on the Holy Spirit. And so we need the Holy Spirit's guidance to help us understand and interpret what the Bible is saying. So I just want to start by reading Colossians. And so this summer we're going through Colossians. I hope that was helpful for someone. Yeah? Yeah? All right. Maybe not. Colossians chapter 1, or chapter 1, verse 1 to 2, says, This is a letter from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and from our brother Timothy. We are writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossus, who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. So why does this story in the meta-narrative of the Bible, why is it important to us? What does it reveal to us? Does it still speak to us? And is it relevant? And it's relevant because today in our world, in our church, we face a myriad of philosophies, ideologies, cultural relativism, universalism, Gnosticism, syncretism, antinomianism. A whole bunch of things are really uh, bombarding the church and attacking what is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? So you have cultural relativism. That is really small up there, isn't it? Sorry about that. Notes are online. You can see that. Universalism. Universalism is something that's really attacking the church today. It's a belief that all human beings will eventually be saved after death. Thus, even if someone who died as an atheist would eventually accept Jesus in the afterlife and become a follower of Christ and be allowed to go into heaven. That's universalism. Some universalists go as far as saying the devil and the demons will be saved as well. On the surface, it seems really good because if God's good, wouldn't he you know, be good to everybody and want everybody with him? But the problem with universalism is it removes the importance of the individual life. It makes Jesus' death unnecessary. It makes us complacent as Christians in our, in our evangelism and even how we live our life. So universalism is one of the things that is attacking the church. Antinomianism. And so this, act, sorry about all the isms. <laughs> you can get the notes. I probably won't explain them so well, but the notes are there. And, and I actually had to practice saying some of the words because there's so many isms and different syllables in it. I got stuck. Antino- I had to practice this one several times. Antinomianism, the view that Christians are released by grace from the observ- observing, observation of moral law. So that's people taking a grace message too far. That's people taking grace and saying that their lives can be lived however they want and they can be careless about the choices that they uh, manifest and the choices that they make. But honest to God, if you understand grace, you're never going to be careless with grace because grace has been good to me and grace teaches me to say no to ungodliness and grace teaches me to say yes to God. Amen? So if you're taking grace too far, then you have missed the point of grace. Amen? And then we have syncretism, and that's really a problem in a postmodern, post-Christian culture. It's a combination of different forms of beliefs and practices. The word syncretism doesn't believe, uh, appear in the Bible, but is a subject addressed by Paul in the book of Coloss. Amen? And Gnosticism, and we're going to talk about that later on in the sermon, or next week Pastor Carl will talk about it. Now, even though the book of Colossians was written 2,000 years ago, it contains and speaks a relevant word to us today. And it's relevant because it helps us gain insights and understandings that will help us in a post-Christian, post-modern world uh, deal with the, the philosophies, ideologies, isms that infect and affect the church's ability to reach the lost. So today my goal is to do a few things. I'm going to talk about the city, 
the date of the epistle, the author of the epistle, the reason for the letter, the outline, and key, key phrases, and I'll leave the last two things somewhere else. And I'm going to do that in four minutes. Okay, the city. The city is actually Colossus, and several hundred years before Paul's day, it had been a leading city in Asia Minor. It was located in a really nice valley called the Lycus River, and was a part of a great east-west uh, trade route uh, from Ephesus to the GNC. Uh, there was three Persian cities, Laodicea, Heropolis, and Coloss, and they were um, like big market cities, and uh, they had been taken over by the Roman Empire, and the city was decimated by an earthquake sometime in the 60s or the late 60s, late 60s AD and rebuilt independent of the Rome support, and later the city was overwhelmed by Sarsans, Saracens, and then it was ultimately destroyed by the Tur- Turks. Twerks, twerks, <laughs> Turks in the 12th century. However, by the first century, Colossus was diminished to a second-rate city. So by the time Paul was writing this epistle, Colossus had lost its marketplace in the, in the Asian world there. So the date and demographic. Wow, I'm sorry about the small printing. Anyways, the book is dated around 60 to 63 AD after death. Colossus was mostly a pagan city with a strong intermingling Jewish population. It appears that several years before, uh, about a thousand or more Jewish families had been transported, and Greek families had been transported into to Colossus, and that probably, you know, they would have prospered there because it was a proper, prosperous valley and a prosperous location. They would have invited more of their Jewish friends, and by the time Paul was writing this book, there was probably 11,000 Jewish people, and they were called Jewish free men. And so this had become a real problem in the church because these Jewish people had begun to influence some of the new believers because they were appalled by their Jewish family members and their Jewish brothers and sisters who had slipped into kind of a bit of paganism themselves, enjoying the wine and the hot baths of Colossus. So it was Greek, it was Jewish, it was pagan, and there was a mixture of Jewish tradition in there. The author... The author is actually Paul and Timothy. So I would imagine that Paul was dictating to this young man, Timothy, and Timothy would have been the scribe at the time. And the church planter tells us in verse 7, says, Paul says this, he says, You learned about the good news from Epaphras, our beloved co-worker. So this was a church that Paul did not even found himself. It was actually this young man, Epaphras, who had founded the church in Colossus, had evangelized it and converted the people. And Paul had not even visited Colossus, or scholars say that he never visited Colossus. And so he wrote them this letter. Uh, Colossians is one of uh, Paul's prison epistles. And so that means that he wrote letters to certain churches while he was in prison in Rome. And Paul was granted in Rome some unusual liberties as a captive. Uh, He could have people come and go and uh, visit him and bring him things, but he was still under the guard of the Praetorian Guard and the Roman soldiers. And so Paul would get news come to him about the condition of different churches like Colossus, Philippians, Ephesians, Corinthians, and all of these churches, and Paul would respond to them. Okay, so it was during his imprisonment in Rome, and, you know, Paul actually... You know, he told Timothy one time, don't be, don't be ashamed of my chains. This is actually the furtherance of the gospel. So he had good report with the Roman soldiers. Actually, many of the Roman soldiers were affected by Paul's testimony. But this is one of his prison epistles. And there are many references throughout all the prison epistles about Paul's chains and how he came to be in Rome. And so the reason for the letter... Okay, the young church had become a target of heretical attacks by which Paul refers to as false teachers. 
They received the grace of Christ, but found themselves in further turmoil. False teachings, mysticism, empty philosophies, legalisms, traditions, and they were threatening the health and the well-being of that small church in Coloss. They were under siege. It was, it was, actually, Paul was quite concerned. They were under siege by these false teachers of prideful men seeking sensationalism, mysticism, rather than Jesus Christ himself. Christ's CD was being challenged and rejected by the people of Colossus. And there was an imminent threat to the church. Paul appealed to them and he reminded them, reminded the church. And this is the whole crux of what Paul communicates in the book of Colossians. He says, humans cannot achieve salvation through their own works, ideas, accomplishments. We can't improve on Christ or Christianity by adding to it ideas, philosophies from other sources no matter how well-intentioned they are. Christianity is not syncretistic. Paul's letter to the Colossians reminds us that there is absolute in Christ. Amen? The outline. So the outline is kind of broken up into six uh, different headings. You have the introduction. And this is where Paul sends his usual greetings. He prays for them and he gives thanks for them. They have the best chapter, the best portion of Colossians is in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 23. And it is a beautiful declaration of Christology, a beautiful anthem of Paul's writings about the Christ life and what Christ accomplished. Then you have Paul's labor for the church. So he talks about it in chapter 1 and a little bit in chapter 2. He says, for the ministry of the church, I work and strive struggle hard depending on Christ's mighty power in me. So Paul always carried about in his body, his heart, his soul, his spirit, the ministry of the church and the needs of the church and the care for the church. His concern was the spiritual welfare of his readers. In fact, in verse two or chapter two, verse one to seven, he says, I agonize over you. And that means he was in personal distress in, in, in a bit of turmoil and anxiety because he didn't want what was sown so well in Colossus to be lost by false teaching and false heresies. And then he talks about freedom from regulations through life with Christ. So all through Colossians, you'll see that Paul warns them about different philosophies, different uh, pagan uh, mysticism, different Jewish traditions. And he does that really eloquently in chapter 2. And you could miss a lot of it, but it's, we'll break it down. And he pleads with them to reject false t-shirts. And then he does his normal thing in the epistles where he talks about a call to holy living. And he says, you know, you can do holy living not because of what you can do to get salvation. You can do holy living because Christ lives on the inside of you. Okay? And then he has his final greetings. In summary, the book of Colossians is an anthem and presentation of the Apostle Paul's Christology. What Christ is... And what he's done for us is enough for salvation. We need no other mediators, taboos, or ascetics. To piece out the gospel with bits and pieces of other ideologies does not enrich the gospel. It corrupts the gospel. And that's what Paul tried to convey through the book of Colossians. Some of the key phrases. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 28, he says, We tell others warning everywhere and teaching with all wisdom. And so Paul is telling the Corinthian or the Colossian church here, I'm not just warning you. You're just not the oddballs out here. You know, I, I'm not just picking on you guys. He says, we warn everybody everywhere to watch out for these false teachers. And, and he appeals to them with the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And so this isn't a one-off thing that Paul does. He's so concerned about the well-being of the church that he says, I'm warning you. I, I'm, I'm giving you caution. I'm admonishing you 
you in love that you need to watch out for this stuff. And then he says, also throughout the book, he says, don't drift away from your assurance. See that no one deceives you with a well-crafted argument. Don't let anyone take you captive with empty philosophies. Don't let anyone condemn you on what you eat or drink. And don't let anyone condemn you and, and shame you into pious self-denial and the worship of angels. And so the problem with syncretism, and so actually the, the book was called, or many times people call it the Coloss Heresy, and they, they did that because they couldn't really name one thing. There was just so many things that were attacking the church, and so many false teachers who had come, with, come into the church with a wrong message, they couldn't even give it a label at the time. They just called it the Coloss Heresy. And so it was a syncretism, and it was a, a mix of paganism, of religion, of Jewish practice, of, you know, really um, astrological practices, all kinds of things. And Paul went into, or Paul wrote to the class because he wanted to deal with this. And he wasn't dealing with one component of a false teaching, but he was dealing with a mishmash of heresy. And it was some sort of Greek Jewish synthesis. All the features, however, found in the Coloss heresy would later be known and referred to as proto-Gnosticism. It was the beginning of Gnosticism, which continues today and has ever plagued the Christian church. There you go. I'm stopping there. <laughs> because it is quarter after 12, and I have like 12 other pages, not really. So when you approach the gospel of Coloss or the epistle of Coloss, just look at it through the week. You should be reading this book through the week and we're going to be studying it on the Sundays throughout the summer and you need to engage in it. You need to look at the meanings. You need to think about the historical context. You need to think about the meaning of the words. Actually get involved in the study of Coloss through the summer and discover the good things that Paul has to say that are very applicable to us in our postmodern and post Christian world. And Paul, it is a beautiful book about how Paul affirms that there's nothing more important in your salvation, nothing more important in the Christian life than having that foundation that Jesus Christ is the full revelation of God. He is the fullness of God. And you can have all the knowledge of mysteries and divine things because you live in him and he lives in you. Amen. So we're going to stop there. I know that wasn't very inspiring. It was just a little bit of background information. But, you know, I would encourage you to read the book of Colossians through the summer and journey along with us. Like last year, Pastor Carl did the study on Galatians. And, you know, if you read along with him and journey along with him, it was actually a transformative time together. And so I encourage you, allow the word to transform you, allow it to bring revelation to you about what, what is being spoken then and what's being spoken to us today. Amen? Let's stand. Pastor Carl, why don't you come and close in prayer? <laughs> and just y'all, um, those who helped on... Tuesday with the Aberdeen meal and graduation. Thank you very much. Please continue to keep Jesse and Amy in, in prayers that they're another week in the hospital. And so, Lord, we love them and we bless them. We just pray God's grace and blessing and peace over them. Yeah, please do that. Like spend, spend the next several weeks, just really meditate on Colossians. Read it through, read it through, read it through. Because we're all going to experience this book together all summer long. But if you read it through and you come and you've read that word and you've interacted with it, we're going to have a really, really meaningful summer. So, so do that. Turn to your neighbor and say, do that. You need to do that. It's going to be real good. I mean, what God said to this little obscure church, what does it mean to us today? You're going to have a blast. It's going to be good. Well, Father, we love you. We bless you. Thank you for what a wonderful time it is to be in your house and in your presence. Father, I just declare everyone blessed here today. 
Father, I, I just command in Jesus' name every obstacle, every problem, everything that stands in the way of the revelation of your goodness to them, I cast it down in Jesus' name. I break every barrier between each person here and your love and your faithfulness in Jesus' name. Let it flow in each and every life. I command right now the revelation of the love of a wonderful God and Father to be on everyone. I pray that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the reality of your favor expressed in us and through us, that it be clearly demonstrated. And I thank you for the divine partnership, the third person of the Trinity, Holy Spirit, that you are with us to manifest and declare and demonstrate the goodness of our Heavenly Father. So thank you for your presence with us. We send each one forward in your name, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. I'm just going to ask some of the elders and ministry team, if you guys would come on up front, could be somebody wants prayer before they go, and I don't want you to leave without prayer. If you need prayer, there's people here ready to pray for you. Otherwise, enjoy this fabulous Canada Day-long weekend. God bless you. Be with you in Jesus' name. Amen.